0: Good morning, Center Church. Good morning. It's great to see you guys. Great to be back with you again. Uh, if I haven't, man, there's like new faces and everything. Every time I come here, that's just awesome to see. If I haven't had a chance to, to meet you yet, my name's Brian, and I serve as the lead pastor of Frontline Church, and I also help to oversee the Zero Collective. And the Zero Collective is this growing network of churches um, you know, united under the banner of seeing zero lives uh, unchanged by Jesus in our area, in our community. And so, um, actually, this series that we're about to start today is the first time that we're going to have four churches actually going through this series together. So, that's a really exciting thing. But I want to tell you, I'm just really excited to be back with you right now because of what God is doing in this place. Um, we have been just praying with you and excited to be. Frontline Church is excited to be a part of this new journey with this new building with you. Uh, last weekend, I was at Frontline and I announced that you guys had far exceeded the pledge goal the week before and we had been praying for you. and the whole place just went crazy, interrupted and, and everybody was clapping and cheering. And so uh, I hope that translates into some people helping pick up a hammer and doing some, <laughs> some, some construction work too, because I know there's a lot of work that needs to be done. and you guys, uh, man, it's just exciting, not just that there's a building. But just the way the Holy Spirit is moving in in this community, I don't know any other church, and I know a lot of other pastors and a lot of other churches, I don't know any other church that during like coronavirus, you know, uh, the quarantine and everything that happened, that God has just opened up doors and things are just moving the way that they are here in this church. So if you're new here, I I hope you're getting a sense of that, the way God is moving and that you're a part of something that uh, the Holy Spirit is just moving and working in. And if you're joining us online, uh, welcome, it's great to have you with us as well. So we're starting this new series today, Friend of Sinners. When I was a college student, a ministry student at Indiana Wesleyan University, uh, it was required that we would go to chapel three times a week. Now some of you are gray students, I, I know, some of you maybe understand that, but that was part of the requirement, three times a week you had to go to a chapel service. And I skipped chapel all the time, constantly. The problem was not chapel, the problem was my maturity level. I would like to believe that I have grown up a little bit since then. I'd like to believe that since graduation, I've matured a little. But things were so bad, this actually got me in quite a bit of trouble that a few months before graduation, the dean of student affairs called me into his office and he basically said, I'm not going to let you graduate if you do not make up these chapels. So I started having to go to the Dean of Student Affairs office, and I had to make up every single one of these chapels that I had skipped so that I could graduate from college with a ministry degree and go into ministry, which is ridiculous. Uh, Fast forward a few years, so it's a few years after graduation, Carrie, my wife, and I are back at Indiana Wesleyan for, it was like an alumni weekend, it might have been homecoming, I can't really remember and we were walking through the student center together, and Carrie wasn't right next to me, she was over here looking at something, and I bump into the dean of student affairs. And he turns around and he sees me, and as soon as he sees me, he goes, chapel skipper, (laughs) chapel skipper, it's you. I, I haven't seen you in so long. Man, do you remember all the chapels he used to skip? I don't think the guy even remembered my name. I don't think he even knew what my name was. It's just Chapel Skipper, and so I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's me, yeah, good to be back again. As we're having this conversation, where he keeps calling me this, uh, Carrie, my wife, walks up, you know, right in the middle of this conversation, and he turns and he sees her, and he goes, oh, Carrie Woods, <laughs> it's so good to see you. You were such a great student. You, you were involved in so many things on campus, and she was, my wife was like the perfect model student, and then he sees the ring on her finger and he says, hey, who did you ever end up marrying? She looks at me and then she looks back at him and she goes, I married Chapel Skipper right here. <laughs> and the look of horror on his face. I, it was one of the proudest moments of my life. I, I put my arm around her and I was like, how you like me now? That's right. Chapel Skipper. Uh, Have you, uh, the question I want to ask you as we go into this morning is the question, have you ever felt like you've been reduced down to a label? Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever been on the receiving end of feeling like you've been reduced down to a label? Uh, It's not a great feeling, is it? It's, It's like somebody gets a sense of one aspect of your life, one small piece of who you are, and so they reduce you down to that one thing and that's all you are and they make assumptions and expectations based on just, that's all you possibly could ever be. We do this all, all the time in our world, don't we? I mean, constantly, we, we have these kind of labels that we attach to people. Uh, I have four boys, uh, all teenagers now, and one of the things they love to say, every single time I say something that sounds kind of old to them, they say, okay, boomer. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever heard this? Anybody, your kids say this to you, or you say this to your parents? Okay, first of all, I'm not a boomer. I'm a Gen Xer, thank you very much. My parents are boomers. But the, and second of all, they don't care. They, they, they don't care. They, they just say, okay, boomer. It's like that's the label. I've I also had friends who are my age and older who will look at a younger person and say, oh, lazy millennials. Look at those lazy, entitled millennials. As if every single millennial could be reduced down to, the, to this label, Uh, In fact, most of our staff are millennials in the Zero Collective. I got to tell you, they're some of the most hardworking, dedicated people that I've ever met in my entire life. Not every millennial is whatever, you know, lazy or entitled. We're we're a month away from the election season. What's what's the labels we love right now, right? (laughs) Democrats. Oh, those morally corrupt Democrats. Oh, those Republicans, you know. Uh, heartless Republicans, whatever it is, we, we have these labels as if every single human being right now in America could be, you know, fit perfectly into this binary category of either Republican or Democrat, either liberal or conservative. We're all either one or the other. It's ridiculous. But that's what we do, isn't it, with labels? Nobody likes being labeled, or do they? Because there are some labels that we want. There are some labels that we try to get. In fact, for many of us, all we're doing right now is we're we're spending our lives trying to upgrade the labels that we've been given, and we're trying to harvest our identity, harvest our sense of of purpose from those labels. Doctor, thank you very much. Or pastor, leader. I mean, these, these are titles, you know, the top dog. These are the leaders that we oftentimes chase after, aren't they? And so, so what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. We're beginning this series called Friend of Sinners. And in Luke chapter 7, there's a label that Jesus is given. 7 uh, verse 34, Jesus is called Friend of Sinners. And it's not really intended to be like a compliment, but Jesus embodies this in such a beautiful way. And, And so, what we're going to look at this morning is this is the very next event that happens right after Jesus is called Friend of Sinners in Luke's gospel. This is the very next thing that that takes place. And what we're going to see in this story as we look in this morning is Jesus begins to talk about our relationship that we have with labels, the labels we don't want, that we try to spend our life shedding, and labels that we chase after and we do want. So let's jump in together. This is Luke 7 starting in verse 36. It says this, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, by the way, that's a label too. It's one that that he thinks Jesus should be attaining to. If this man really were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a Sinner. sinner. She's a sinner. Remember, Jesus, just a few verses before this, is called friend of sinners. So this is the label that the Pharisee, has attached to this woman. She's a sinner. In fact, we find out here in a few verses, Jesus tells us his name. His name is Simon, Simon the Pharisee. In fact, Jesus is the only one in this story who calls anyone by their first name. Everything else is just labels. And so, this woman is a sinner. That's what she is. That's what he's reduced her down to this label. Now, a lot of times when we read this story, we're really we're kind of hard on Simon the Pharisee. We're like, man, what a jerk. Like, How could he just you know, treat this woman like this? But if we could sort of step into his shoes for a moment, if we could empathize with this man just for a second, think about this. This is his home. Okay, so in, this, in a Middle Eastern culture in the first century, this probably would have been like an outdoor courtyard, and there probably would have been lots of guests invited, and then there would have been a lot of other people kind of leaning in, because this is an important person, and he's got a meal, and he's got the rabbi there the teacher who has come to this meal. And so there's lots of people watching and it's at his home. So he's feeling that sense of, hey, I want to put on a good, you know, make a good impression, that sort of thing. And then what happens is this woman comes in. She's not been invited. She's not an invited guest. She just comes in and crashes the party. So in Middle Eastern culture, the table would have been very low to the ground and the guests would have reclined on one arm near the table with their feet, wanted your feet away from the table. That would have been completely disrespectful to have your feet anywhere near the food. This woman enters, and she's carrying an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. Everybody in that room would have known exactly what that jar was and what it was for. In that culture, a woman would have an expensive jar of alabaster perfume. She would have it reserved for her wedding. It was part of her dowry. And so when she got married, it was actually supposed to be a gift for her spouse someday, this woman comes in and she breaks this alabaster jar and begins to anoint Jesus' feet with it. It's almost like she's saying, I don't see any wedding day in my future. I'm not reserving this for someone. And then she begins to weep, and as her tears fall on Jesus' feet, she lets down her hair and begins to wipe the the tears off of Jesus' feet with her hair. In that culture, in that day, for a woman publicly to take her hair down was basically the cultural equivalent in our culture of a woman going topless in public. That's what's happening here. It's immodest. It's inappropriate. And then the real kicker, she kisses Jesus' feet over and over and over again. You would never do that. (laughs) That was unheard of. Again, they walked everywhere. They had open-toed sandals. There was no indoor plumbing, so streets were nothing more than kind of open sewers. With you know, especially if you had animals, so you would never kiss someone's feet. That was just gross. So what's happening here in Simon's house? He's watching this. It's this woman comes in. It's awkward. It's tense. Everyone is quiet. Uh, it's inappropriate, and it's almost intimate. There's something intimate about it and almost kind of gross. That's what's happening in this moment. And the reason Simon is so affected, the reason he's so uncomfortable here in this moment is because Simon has a label too. This woman, he labels her, she's a sinner. That's what she is. Everybody in the room knew it. She's a sinner. But Simon has a label too, only Simon is trying to live into his label, and it's the label Pharisee. Pharisees the religious elite. And even among the Pharisees, there was a pecking order. If you were important enough to have the teacher, the, the local rabbi, come to your house as an invited guest, you were a big deal. So Simon is wanting to keep up appearances. He's wanting to lean into this title. He's wanting other people to perceive him this way. So you have these two characters, the sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee. And what I love about this story, what I find so interesting is these two characters showcase for us the two main approaches people have toward religion. And they really are the two main approaches that we have, even in our day, toward religion. And so here are the two approaches. Go ahead if you want to. Uh, The first one is be very bad, right? Reject God, pursue your own way, make your own rules. I'm my own boss. Nobody has a right to tell me what to do. That's the first one. Be very bad. That's the first approach toward religion. The second approach toward religion is be very good. Follow all the rules. Make sure you earn people's respect. Perform well and make sure other people see you in the right light. Be very bad or be very good. The problem with both of these approaches to religion is neither one is a pathway to God. (laughs) Neither one actually leads you to God. They, all, both of these are a form of lostness. And so there are irreligious people, there are religious people, and then there are Christians. And so I want you to pay attention because Jesus is about to do something. We're about to watch Jesus, and Jesus is going to show us what it means to respond the third way, his way. Jesus is about to show us, here's how a Christian approaches God. Here's how a Christian approaches life. Here's how a Christian approaches the labels that we have and the labels we give other people in our world. So, this is, how, this is how Jesus responds. Verse 40, it says, then Jesus answered his thoughts. Stop right there. That's a problem, right? Simon hasn't thought, has said any of these words out loud. He's just looking at this woman, shaking his head, and Jesus is like, I'm going to respond to what you're thinking right now. You're in trouble already, right? Jesus answered his thoughts Simon, he said to the Pharisee, Jesus is the only person in this story who calls anyone by their first name. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. What a powerful moment Jesus just steps into this moment and he he says, there are religious people, there are irreligious people, and then there are Christians. And he says, this is how God sees things. This is a picture of what grace looks like. Jesus is inviting both of them to encounter grace in this moment. Now, a lot of times what people do is they read this story, What they read what Jesus says and they go, wait a minute, is Jesus saying that all I have to do is go do a bunch more bad things and then God will forgive me for more and then I'll, I'll love him more? Is that the deal? Is that, is that what we're supposed to do with this? <laughs> Walk out the door and just go, oh, man, I gotta, church has got to get over, I got some sin and I need to do so that I can get out there and get it done so that then God can forgive me of more things that I've done bad and then I can be forgiven more? No, that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus is saying, he actually makes his point. Go ahead to the next slide there. Jesus makes his point when he says neither of them had the money to pay him back. A loan is made, one for 500 pieces of silver, one for 50 pieces of silver. The issue is neither one of them has the money to pay him back. They're both bankrupt. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter, both approaches have left these two characters in the story, Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman. Both of them have been left bankrupt because being bad and being good, neither one of them gets you to God. It doesn't matter whether you owe 500 pieces of silver because your sin has been so great or 50 pieces of silver. The issue is, none of us have the ability within ourselves to make ourselves presentable to God. None of us has the ability, no matter what we've done. Maybe you've grown up in church all your life. You've been in a religious family, and you never went through a season or a time of rebellion in your life. That's awesome. Praise God. You're just in need of God's grace every single bit as much as the person who's just walked in off the street. That's the situation. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. There's a guy who's been attending Frontline, the church where I pastor, for years and years and years now. And he, he and I have this weird, I guess you'd call it like a ritual, once a year. So it's the same weekend in April, every single year, when uh, the sermon is over, he will wait to get a chance to come up and talk to me. And when he comes up to talk to me, to, he will say, Five years. And then time will go by. I won't even see this guy or talk to him, hardly at all. And then uh, the next year, the same weekend in April, he'll, he'll come forward, six years, seven years. With tears in his eyes, he will literally walk up and wait his turn to say to me, it's been nine years, ten years. And whenever he says this, I will respond by going, man, that's awesome. I'll give him a high five. We'll hug each other, and we'll just celebrate. Um, during this past April, we were in you know, lockdown, you know, uh, quarantine. The church wasn't meeting physically. And so this same weekend in April, I get a Facebook message from this guy. And I kind of forgot. And so I see the Facebook message and I hadn't talked with him for quite a while. And so I I was kind of nervous, like, oh no. And so I open up the Facebook message and it just says 14 years. (laughs) 14 years sober. That's what it is. That's a guy who has not forgotten what Jesus saved him from. He hasn't forgotten, I remember, it it was an Easter Sunday in April, 14 years ago. He hasn't forgotten what it was like to be a hopeless drunk who was just forfeiting everything in his life, forfeiting his marriage, forfeiting the respect and the trust of his kids, and He gave his life to Jesus, and it began a trajectory of his life to move towards sobriety. And so every year he comes up and he says, it's been this many years. He hasn't forgotten what God saved him from. But here's the catch. Here's the thing I want my friend to never forget. For my friend, his new label cannot now become sober. Do you see that? It can't be, oh, I used to be a drunk And now I met Jesus and now I'm sober. That's my new label. And as long as I keep that label, then I'm good. Everybody likes me and everything is good in my life. He can't just trade one label for another. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel either. The hope we have is so much greater even than that. His, His continued sobriety is awesome. I hope he continues to stay sober. It's been amazing what God's done in his life over these years. But his sobriety is not what makes him presentable to God. See, what Jesus is doing here in this story with these two characters is he is saying that really there's only one difference between these two people, Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman. The only difference that really is prevalent there between them is this woman has chosen to reject the label that she's been given, and she's chosen to take on the one label that only Jesus can give. It's this label. Forgiven. That is a label you can build your life on. That is an identity that's not unstable. That can't be taken from you. And you can't do anything to earn it. And you can't do anything to lose it. And that's why Jesus ends this this story. He turns to the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. That's what he tells her. And The problem is Simon doesn't really think he needs that label. He thinks that label is for other people. And so the kind of the tragedy of this entire story is that Simon really is the only lost person in the story. At the end of this engagement, Simon is the only one who remains lost. Uh, I have a son named Andrew. He just turned 18 years old. And when Andrew was about six years old, he used to do this disgusting thing. He would come in the house from playing outside. You know how little boys' hands are, right, when they've been playing outside. It's filthy dirty. He would open up the refrigerator door, and he would take out the Cool Whip. We would always have like a container of Cool Whip. It would kind of look like that. You probably had those in your house. And he would open up the Cool Whip, and then he would take his nasty, dirty hands, and he would scoop out with his fingers Cool Whip and stand there and just eat it. And so, and then he put it back. And so, the next person would get out the cool, if you open it, it'd be like these brown, nasty streaks through. It was just disgusting. And so, um, his mother and I both said, you've got to stop this. And he could it's like he couldn't stop himself. He just kept doing it. And so, finally, we said, listen, here's the deal. The next time you eat the cool whip with your hands, what we're going to do is we are going to take you to the store. You're going to take your allowance money. My boys, there was a period of time where we'd give them allowance money and they could save it up if they wanted a toy or whatever. So you're going to take your allowance money that you've been saving up. And, and I knew that he had been saving up his money for this little action figure. He wanted this action figure at Meyer. Every time we went to Meyer, he would see it. And I, we said, you're going to have to take that money. You're going to go to the store and you're going to buy the family more cool whip with that money instead. And so he knew this. So the moment comes, Carrie opens the refrigerator and the Cool Whip has the streaks in it. It It's clear somebody's been eating. So we're like, Andrew, did you do this? And he was like, what? No, I have no idea how that happened. That's crazy, Uh, like a six-year-old boy does. And finally he cracked, finally he admitted, yeah, okay, it was me. And so I said, all right, go get your allowance money and get in the car. And he was like angry and devastated. He was crying and he was sad. I'll never forget him sitting in the car. He's got his little pouch of, of allowance money. I remember he's just sitting there like this. Like, like just this like, ugh, that's totally, you know, slumped shoulders. Ugh. So we drive to, to Meyer and we get to Meyer and we start to walk through and, and I knew where the Cool Whip was. And so I said, why don't you go over there and grab the Cool Whip and, and I'll meet you as soon as you're done. And I doubled back. And he didn't know this, but I went and I found the action figure that he wanted, and I took it off the the rack, and I didn't let him see that I had it. So we get the Cool Whip, we go up to the checkout counter, and he puts the Cool Whip on the counter and gets out his money, and I put the action figure down next to the Cool Whip. And he looks at me with this sort of confused look on his face and watches as I take out my wallet and I proceed to pay for both. Now, why did I do that? I mean, besides the fact that I am a terrible, permissive parent <laughs> who is soft and weak. Uh, yes, I know that. <laughs> but in a larger sense, why why would I do that? The reason I did it is because I want Andrew to know for sure there are consequences for his sin. There are consequences for his mistakes, and somebody has to pay when you do things like that. But the other thing I want him to know to the core of his being is that there is always more Cool Whip. And he is infinitely more valuable to me than all the Cool Whip in the world will ever be. And I want him to trust and understand his father can take care of that. I tell you that because maybe you're here today, and maybe maybe you've made some big mistakes, and maybe you have some labels that have been attached to you because of some things you've done. Maybe it's the label divorced. Maybe it's the label fired. I got fired from my job. Maybe it's some other, uh, you know, addict or or shameful, whatever it is that's gotten attached to your life. You need to understand there are consequences to our sin. There is, is, and someone has to pay But the other thing you need to know today, and I hope that you're going to encounter the grace of Jesus today, is that you need to understand there is always more cool whip. Okay? God doesn't run out of forgiveness for you. He doesn't run out of his forgiveness. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. He's called you his son. He's called you his daughter by his grace, by what he did for you on the cross, and it cannot be taken from him. See, and that, that's the problem at the end of the story. Simon just doesn't realize, man, that's for me. He, he thinks he's got the right labels, he thinks he's pursuing the right things. Why would I need that label? Why would I need Jesus' label of forgiveness? And so, at the end, it's him who forfeits the opportunity to be restored to God. The path he's on will never lead him to God, and he'll never be able to build an identity on it. It's not stable. And so the question as we kind of wrap things up here today is, where do you see yourself in the story? And that, that's really what I think we're intended to do with these stories. We read them. We let the, the truth of them wash over us. And then I think we're supposed to just say, so where am I? What does Jesus want to say to me today? So let's just take a minute and reflect on that. The band's going to come up here. And uh, as they're coming up, where, where do you see yourself in the story? Maybe you're like this woman. Maybe you've been labeled a certain way by your past, by things that have happened. And maybe today the application is just to let those labels fall apart, let those labels fall down, and pursue the one label that matters. Receive this morning the one label that matters, and that's the label that only Jesus can give, and it's the label of forgiven. Forgiven. He took your labels on himself so that you could go free. He let them all be attached to him on the cross. That's the whole point. That's what he did for us. He took our place. Maybe today you you see yourself more in Simon the Pharisee. Maybe you've got all the right labels or you're working toward getting all the right labels. And your life is basically just about upgrading and upgrading to where you get them. And what you need to know... Is that all those labels that you're working to try to attach to your life? They're vulnerable. They're not stable. You can't build a life on them. They won't last. There's only one label that does. Maybe you've been going to church your entire life, but you've never allowed the truth of the gospel to penetrate your life. Maybe you're watching online, you've never allowed the truth of what Jesus has to offer to penetrate your life. You're a son, you're a daughter. there's always more Cool Whip. Your father doesn't run out. He has more for you. He has a life for you. But you have to to take on this posture. You have to take on his forgiveness. And he'll do it. He'll build the life through you. Um, The reason that we are going into this new building is because there are people in Byron Center like this woman and they're broken and they're doing all the wrong things in the wrong way, they're inappropriate, they're awkward, they're a mess, they're addicted, and they need a church who says, this is what Jesus looks like. And his forgiveness wasn't just for me, his death on the cross was every bit as much for you as it was for me, as it was for the pastor, as much as it was for anybody else. The other reason we're going into this new building is because there are people like Simon all through Byron Center too, aren't there? They're in church every Sunday. They've got all the right labels. On the outside, it appears perfect. They've got all the right pedigrees, but they've never encountered the gospel. They've never encountered the truth of Jesus. And Simon the Pharisee needs it too. So would you do this? Would you bow your heads with me? just going to spend a moment in the room and if you're watching online, if today you'd say, today today is a day I need to let go, with one hand I need to let go of these labels I've been clinging to, whether they're because they're labels of shame that have been given to me or they're labels because I've been pursuing them. I need to let go of those labels and I need to receive the label of forgiveness today. I need to find my identity in Christ. If you're ready to say, I need to make Jesus Lord of my life, I'm ready to make His forgiveness the thing I'm going to build my life on, would you raise your hand in this place? That's you. If you're watching online, if, you, if it's time, if you know this is the time for you to take that step to surrender your life to Jesus, I want you to direct message us if you're watching on Facebook, and, and you can actually click that button that says raise hand if you're watching on our live stream, and you can give us a message and just let us know you did that. Because what we want to do is we want to help you take that next step. Take that next step to say, what does it mean to begin to build my life on the person of Jesus? To build my life on his forgiveness. So let's just go to him together right now. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that uh whatever posture we come to you in, even if it doesn't look right, if it doesn't have all the right trappings, maybe we're like this woman, uh, you respond. You respond when we come to you and say, Jesus, we need you. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. Uh, we thank you, God, today that your death on the cross was every bit as much for the broken person as it was for the righteous person who's trying to build their own righteous through their own religious efforts God, your grace was for every single one of us. And so, God, we we invite you to make us new. We invite you to give us a new life in you. And today, God, we just commit ourselves to what it means to live out this new life in you. And so, God, help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear where we attach labels in our world to other people, God. I pray that you would help us just see ourselves as uh, people who have found something so precious and so good that we can't wait to share it with others, like one beggar telling another beggar where they found food. Would you just allow us to be that, Jesus, that hope in that place? We need more than just a new building, God. We need to be as a people to have a heart after your heart, God, to be aware of the people in our midst, God, who need you. Would you just not just give us a new building, but give us a new heart as a church, a new spirit, a new attitude toward the people we work with, toward our family members, toward our friends, toward the people we interact with every single day in Byron Center, God. And we'll just give you the praise for all that you're doing, all that you're going to do in the future, God. You get all the glory because you're the one who who took the cross on our behalf and you're the one who rose from the grave. So we love you and we thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone said.